lesson number four of exploring God's word. Um, but I will tell you, and, and just because I know the lesson, I have not been able to sit down long enough to go back and hear it, but I know the lesson. And the lesson took you from the Exodus to Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and it walked you through the temple, or the tabernacle rather. And in the tabernacle there was some things that began to happen and, and, and we, we took you to the table of showbread and the, the golden candlesticks and the brazen altar and the la- la- laver and all of those things. Now tonight I am tasked with the job of taking you from the time that Moses died and the time they went into uh, the land of Canaan all the way to right before Jesus is born. That's a lot. Uh, I don't know who it was. I said that earlier and someone said, is this a watch night service? Are we going to be here till midnight? No, I'm going to do my best. And, and here it is. There's not a lot of, uh, well, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. But there's not like a single solitary uh, time where we can bring you to a place where we can come to the altar and lift up our hands. Let me just put it this way as we go through it. The law cannot save you. All right, the law can't. I don't have time to go through it because I would be getting outside of what this exploring God's word teaches. And the whole point of what I'm doing is I'm showing you that anyone can teach exploring God's word, and and I'm showing you that it's easy to be taught. You can use your your book. You can read it word for word if you have to. But let me just help you for just a moment. So I'm give me give me about two minutes, three minutes outside of what is in this lesson. Go read the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 7. Go read the book of Galatians. We have a, a, I'm so excited as a pastor, we have a junior Bible quizzing team this year made up of I think four or five, Sister Singleton, is it four or five young ladies? Five, five young ladies and, and they have never quizzed before and they are doing awesome and this year it is on selected verses, I think they learned 249 verses or something like that uh, that they'll learn through this year and they will memorize it and uh, they've already started doing it. I get to hear every once in a while, my daughter is one of them, but we'll give you a chance in a couple months. We're going to let them come up here and show you what they've learned and I'm telling you it is powerful. But I, I've kind of got excited because I like the book of Galatians. They're learning selected verses in Galatians and selected verses in Hebrews. Is that right? Hebrews. And so uh, there'll be some sermons I preach on Galatians and I'll probably let them quote my my uh, my text, but all you have to do is read Romans, especially Romans chapter seven, the book of Galatians. Read Hebrews, and you will find that the law cannot save you. So let me help you out. On Highway seventy, there are speed limit signs. How many of you have seen them? How many of you know what they say? Has any of you exactly? Have any of you felt the penalty of breaking that law? Uh huh. Absolutely. Now watch this. How many of you still speed knowing the law and knowing the penalty of the law? Because the law cannot save you. There is not one moment where that speed limit sign has reached out and slowed your car down. What Paul says, and again I'm getting off and I'm going to get all excited because I love the book of Romans. But what Paul says is this. Paul says all the law did was tell me I sinned. Now, here in America, we have this saying, and it's, it's another law, if you will, or interpretation. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. But in God's eyes, that's not entirely true. God said there was no sin, if you will, except that a law came, 
And the Bible, this is what Romans says, the Bible says that, that, that the law came and the law took advantage of us. The law says if you do this, there's a punishment. And so the law took advantage of us and our flesh could not redeem ourselves. We couldn't help but be bad, if you will. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves so far from God, we didn't know what to do. And the law had no power. All the law could do is drop the hammer and say, you've sinned and come short of the glory of God. All the law could do is say, you are, you, you, the, the wages of sin is death. And so you go through, you go through uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you see the law that was laid out and it seemed to be easy. The Bible teaches us, uh, and I don't know if you touched on this, Brother Perryman, I don't know if it's in there, but the Bible says that God set before them two mountains, a mountain of cursing and a mountain of blessing. And he divided the Israelites into each side and he just kind of wanted to make it clear. If you follow the law, you will be blessed. If you break the law, you will be cursed. You think it's easy. You think it's cut and dry. But it's not. They get down off the mountain. They build the temple, or the tabernacle rather, and they walk for almost another 40 years in that wilderness. And during that time, there was something that began to happen there, and what happened was all of those unbelieving people died. Save Joshua and Caleb. Every man that walked out of Egypt died on that journey because of their unbelief. Except for Joshua and Caleb. That unbelief that Israel had, it reaped the judgment of God. They wandered. They died. Only Joshua and Caleb walked in. And there was this time at the end of that journey. Where God had told Moses, he said, I want you to speak to this rock. And this rock is going to provide water. It's the second time that water would have come from a rock. But Moses was mad at Israel. And in his anger, he struck the rock. When God specifically said, speak to the rock. Because of that, water still flowed so that Israel would not die. But God told Moses, because of your disobedience, you cannot enter into the promised land. He allowed Moses to go up on top of a rock, a mountain, and see the promised land. But he died and was buried. And Joshua took reins, and they walked over the Jordan River. And the Jordan River, as they crossed over, they had it where the priests were going to step into the water carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and the waters were going to part. The understanding was, was not so much that they parted like the Red Sea, but that as the river flowed, God kind of put a, a barrier upriver from them and the waters just piled up, if you will. And, and because of that, all of Israel passed over on the other side, dry land. It was an incredible, miraculous thing. And, and the ones, almost all of the ones that walked across had not walked across the Red Sea. It was God just showing, I can do this. They get across, in fact, 12 men, one of each of the 12 tribes, they, they gather stones and, and, and each man grabbed a stone and they brought it out from the middle of that dry creek bed or a river bed and brought it over and they made a, an altar, if you will, a monument. And the whole idea was in the years to come when our children pass and see that, they're going to say, what does that mean? And we need to remind them, Jesus brought me out. He brought me out. He brought me out. They enter in the promised land and it 
It was beautiful. It was incredible. One of the first victories that God allowed them to take was the battle of Jericho. And we know that. You've sang songs about it. You've heard it in Sunday school. They marched around the city one time for six days. Each day they marched around the city. On the seventh day in in quietness they marched six times. And then they marched a final seventh time. And at the end they blew their trumpets and they shouted with a loud voice. And God caused that city to fall. I've heard some archaeologists say that when they've studied the, 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 the walls of Jericho, they found that the walls of Jericho fell out, not in. Usually if, if, if you're sieging a city and you're catapulting stones to a city and you're battering rams, it knocks those walls inward. But God just said, I don't need them to knock them inward. I can just lay them down any old way I want to. It kind of defied what the archaeologists could understand. And it just proved that it had to be a supernatural force that opened that city up. And they go in and it's incredible. And I imagine they were on cloud nine. The greatest, what what I can find is probably the strongest city of Canaan and was Jericho. Some, some say that the walls were so thick you could race a chariot around the top. That's how thick those walls were. They had homes inside the walls. Rahab's home was one of them. And it looked good. God's got it. Then they go to another little piddling city by the name of Ai. And it seems like it would be good. They didn't even take the whole army. Just a couple uh, soldiers, a couple hundred soldiers. And they were soundly whooped when they come back with their tails between their legs having lost men Israel found out that because there was sin in their camp Achan one of the soldiers had disobeyed God's commandments at Jericho stole things when God said don't take anything from Jericho I'll give you all the other cities but Jericho is mine first things belong to God and so they come back from that defeated Ai, Achan's sin. He ha- has to, to, to fess up what was happening. And they, they stone Achan and his family there in the valley of Achor. And, and, and the purpose, it became very, very clear. If you obey God, good things happen. When you sin, it doesn't work so well. From city to city, from village to village, they fought. They took the promised land from the north to the south to the east and the west. They won victory after victory. And finally, they have subdued the land. And each of those 12 tribes got their own portion of land. But it was after that that conquest of, of, of Canaan that Joshua finally dies And after Joshua's death, Israel fell headlong into the deepest, ugliest sin they could. It led them to captivity. This is the book of Judges. The book of Judges is just one failure after another sprinkled with some good things and some blessings of God and occasionally somebody rising uh, up. There were judges, 15 judges in all. Some of them you may not be familiar with. There was one woman judge by the name of Deborah. There were two priests, Eli and Samuel. There were two prophets, Deborah being one of them and Samuel. Other judges like Gideon and Samson, we know them because of the story that they have. But I will tell you, they were men or or women raised up from God to lead their people out. God would use them. They were not perfect. They hadn't always done things right. But God wanted to use them to remind Israel where they were at was nothing that they had. In fact, some of the judges, you may not even know, Othniel, 
just the younger brother of Caleb. Ehud was a left-handed man and an assassin. Shamgar was just a, a, a farmer or a, or a livestock herder that had an ox goad, a stick that he would poke the ox to get him to move. Deborah, a woman. Gideon from an obscure family of the smallest tribe. But yet each of them reminds us that God wants to use whosoever will, let them be used. Because God is not looking for perfect people. God's looking for hungry people. He can use a rough old uh, uh, fisherman named Peter. He even was willing to use a liar and a cheater and a and a uh, uh, you know someone that was willing to sell him for thirty pieces of silver named Judas. And if Judas wouldn't have hung himself, Judas could have found forgiveness, just like Peter found forgiveness. He was willing to use a murderer by the name of Saul, who we now know as the Apostle Paul. He just wants to find someone that's willing to be used. But when they got out of those, that time of the judges and Samuel the prophet, also a judge, is ruling, and it seems like maybe they've kind of figured some things out. You know, we ought not go after the prophets of Baal. We ought not follow after the Philistines. We ought not follow after the idolatry of the Midianites. But Israel began to look around them. And, and, and see, they had been, they had been uh, uh, prisoners of Egypt for 400 years. They had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they had been in this time of judges for about another 400 years. And now they are in their land, and they start looking around, and they've, they've built some cities now, and they said, we want a king like all the other heathen nations. We want a king to lead us. We want a king to rule us. Samuel told them, said, look, you don't want a king. It may, a king might look good, but here's what a king's going to do. A king's going to tax you. A, a king is going to say, you know what, I need to build me a, a, a palace, so I need you to start giving some money. I, I, I need to raise up an army, so I'm going to make a draft, and all of your sons are going to have to go to, to war. And so you don't want a king. God can lead and guide you if you'll let you. But they wanted to be like everybody else. And God said, fine. You want to be like everybody else? I'll do it. One of the greatest prayers ever prayed was Jesus' prayer where the humanity of Jesus prayed this, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And Israel decided they wanted to do it their way. Because of that, kings came. And everything that, that Samuel said was going to happen when you got a king happened. There's three kings at first that we are familiar with. It's what's called the United Kingdom. Each of these kings reigned for 40 years. The first one is named Saul. Out of the tribe of Benjamin, Samuel, with God's uh, uh, will, chose Saul. A humble man, a courageous man, a character that, that, that would have been a great king. But the problem was once he had the power and once he had the authority, he forgot his place with God. And instead of being the humble man, he became a corrupted self-willed, jealous, disobedient man. If Saul's first few years were categorized by them being good, his last years was filled with so many mistakes and sins. His great pride prevented him from hearing God's word through the voice of the prophet Samuel. He tried to offer sacrifices when Samuel the priest was the only one to do so. And because of that, God said, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. 
In fact, it gets so bad and just... We don't have time to do a character study on Saul, but just to show you how bad it got, at the end of Saul's life, he was so desperate to hear the voice of God that he had rejected almost his entire adulthood that he goes to a witch and asks her to conjure up the spirit or the ghost or the soul or or whatever you want to call it of Samuel the prophet who had been dead. Now, I don't know how it happened, and I'm not going to tell you that it really was Samuel. For all I know, it was a demon that, that came up or something. But here's the thing. Whatever came up said the right thing. And it told, Sam, it told Saul, it said, it said, you're done. The, 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 the kingdom's been ripped from you. Your, your life is over. And right after that, Saul is killed on the battlefield. The second king comes along. You know it, it's David. David had served Saul. David had killed Goliath when Saul was was king. And David came on. He was a, a shepherd lad with the sheep. He had fought a bear and a lion that had threatened his flock. The spirit of the Lord was with David and it caused him to be able to do things that, that, that physically were not possible but by the help of the Lord it was. Killed Goliath with a stone and a sling and then made sure it was done when he cut off Goliath's head with his own sword. And all of this brought David praise. That that, that refrain, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And it caused Saul to boil in his own rage. But David loved God and David did everything he could not to, 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 to fight against Saul. And when it came time for David to be king, it seemed like everything was going to be good. David is a righteous man. The Bible says a man after God's own heart. So surely by this time, Israel is going to change. Surely by this time, Israel is going to make it work. But David committed a terrible sin. David, when he should have been fighting a battle, finds Bathsheba. And a fair is kindled and, and, and a baby is produced and a murder happens when David has her husband killed and it looks like an army type thing but David has her husband killed and, and David, he, he was sinful and, and he was broken and God had to punish him and God had to take the king to, or, or, or the child from David. But David was also a man who was able to pin one of the most incredible Psalms in the world, and that's Psalms 51. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Purge me with hyssop, Lord. Wash me that I might be clean. David knew what it meant to repent. David had to suffer the consequences of his sin. There were some things that still had to play out. He lost the unborn son. He lost other sons to battle, and he lost the kingdom, if you will, But through it all, David realized this. I would rather make my soul right with God than to gain the whole world. And so the end of David's life is good because he died repented. Even though there was some things in his life that didn't play out the way he thought. David wanted to build a temple to God. But David had always been a man of war, shedding blood. And God said, I don't want you to build my temple. My, my temple. I, I'm going to save it for someone that hasn't shed the blood, but I will let you get all that is needed and, and you can bring it together. The next son comes on the scene, Solomon. 
One of the most incredible things in the Bible shows that when Solomon was king, took the office of the king, he offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. It was an incredible thing. Solomon started right and it was there and because of that, that love and respect that Solomon had, one night in a dream, God spoke to Solomon and said, what would you like? Solomon thought for a minute. He could have asked for riches. He could have asked for, for you know, a incredible kingdom, a great army. And he said, no, I would like wisdom. Because of that, God gave him and made Solomon the wisest king that had ever lived. The first years of Solomon was good. But Solomon had a flaw that every Israelite had. This desire to be like the world. And so Solomon started realizing that, you know what, I can build up my kingdom by, if I go and marry this, this girl over here, and, and she's the, the prince, princess of, uh, of this little kingdom, well, you know, it, it'll be a good connection with our kingdoms, kind of a truce, and I can build up alliances, and she began to do that. Scripture says in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 12, there was none like him before him, neither was there any like him after he had incredible wealth, but he also had a lot of wives, about a thousand of them. Now, I, uh, even if that's not sinful enough, that's going to cause a whole lot of problems because that means about a thousand mother-in-laws, and uh, you got to work on that, you know. And then he had concubines, and he had a harem, and all of that. And one of the, the, the telling places of Solomon's life was the fact that he built a temple to God. That's admirable. We love it. That's an incredible thing to talk about. That prayer that Solomon prayed, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, turn or seek God, turn from their wicked ways. You know, that, that prayer. As awesome as that is, Solomon's flaw was he had a wife and he said, you know, I know you're Egyptian and you probably have some other gods. Why don't I build you a temple so you can worship your gods? See, we, we sometimes forget that part of Solomon's life. Yes, he built a temple for God. But he said, I'm not going to worship in this other temple, but it's okay if you worship in that other temple. Here's the problem. Almost always, that will never stay separate. And pretty soon Solomon falls into a, a, a place where the beginning of his kingdom, the beginning of his reign, he was a man whose desire to please God was great. But at the end of his life, he was backslidden royalty. He forgot God that spoke to him when he sacrificed a thousand sacrifices. Kind of reminds me of David, I mean of, of, of Paul, when he said it's not that we run, but it's that we finish the race. Finish the race. That, that, that's true in our life as well. You, you could go your entire life and not live for God, but in the last part of your life, get right with God, and God says, welcome, my good and faithful servant. Or you could serve God for 99% of your lifespan, but that last 1%, you lose out with God, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because it's not how you live, in a, in a sense it is, but it's how you finish. Which is why Jesus, in one of his parables, said, to, he said, he said, it was like a, a man whose time of harvest had come and he needed some help. 
So he went down to the local manpower office and he said, I need some harvesters. I need some people. I'll pay you a denarius, which is a day's wage. Started 8 o'clock in the morning and worked till, till, till you know, night comes and, and I'll pay you a full day's wage. It'll be good. And he got a bunch of people that said we like it. And they started working at 8 o'clock in the morning. Noontime rolls around and, and, and he looks out and he says the harvest is not going to be, be, be taken in. He goes back to the manpower office and he says, I need some more help. If you'll work from noon till the quitting time, I'll pay you a denarius, a day's wage. They came in. About 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, he looks out, he says, I'm still not going to be done with this harvest. He goes back and he gets more people and he says, if you'll work these last couple of hours with me, I'll pay you a day's wage, a denarius. Well, when it came time to pay up, those that had worked all day for that denarius, they got kind of bitter that there were some that only worked a couple hours. But the Lord was just simply saying that it's not necessarily how long you live for God. It's how you were when it ends. If you will, when that payday comes, where were you with God? And that was the problem with Israel. They had ups and downs, but so many of them failed. Solomon's kingdom was incredible, but after his death, it began to fall apart. The presence of God had been lost. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, had said he was going to tax the people more than Solomon had ever taxed. And so they didn't like it. They, they wanted to, to, to reform. They begged him. He had older and wiser uh, uh, people that were trying to help him out. And, but he didn't listen to them. And because of that, the kingdom of Israel split. This is what's called the divided kingdom. And just for, for your understanding, this is where in the Bible you start hearing the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom, it was ten tribes, and it was known as the kingdom of Israel. The first king was Jeroboam, the capital Samaria. And that kingdom of Israel, those ten tribes that stayed, there was, there was 19 kings that Israel had. And if you read through, through the kings, if you read through the chronicles, if you read through some of the, the, the prophets, you will find that not one of those 19 kings was good. They were the most wicked, idolatrous, depraved people you could ever find. And because of that, the kingdom of Israel, those 10 tribes, the kingdom of Israel became so mired in idolatry. God didn't want them to be that way, and so he sent them prophets. The two prophets that you're most familiar with, Elijah and Elisha, spent years of their life saying, you don't need to follow after that, but no one seemed to want to repent. And the judgment of God came. And the people were taken captive by Assyria in 721 B.C., 2 Kings chapter 17. Israel found its judgment. The kingdom of, of Judah that was there, the kingdom of Judah, it consisted of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. That kingdom of Judah, the first king was Rehoboam, which is Solomon's son, and their capital city was Jerusalem. Judah had 19 kings and one queen. But Judah had some good kings. Most of them were idolatrous, most of them were evil. But yet even then, Judah has prophets from God just as the others did. Prophets that warned of the judgment of God. Prophets that said his wrath was going to come unless you repent. People like Isaiah and Jeremiah came to Judah with a message that if you don't repent, something bad's going to happen. Judah 
ultimately refused to repent a little later than, than uh, uh, Israel, but in 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried them away. And that captivity lasted 70 years. Now, I don't have time to get in it, and you don't either if you teach this Bible study. But it, it, it's just like so many of these prophecies that you find in the Old Testament. They, they have a, a, a prophetic voice even today that there is a coming judgment. That if you don't live right, if you don't walk with God, there's a judgment coming. I know some of them said, oh, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you've been saying this for a long time. It's never going to happen. Until Nebuchadnezzar came knocking on their door and taking their sons and daughters away. And until Jerusalem was destroyed and not a stone standing. And, and God uses that to remind us of today. Now, today's lesson, and I'm, I'm almost done, and I, I know it, it, it get over a little nor, uh, earlier than normal, but here's how it is. This just sets it up. I, I know we went through, and I'm not quite done, I know we went through a lot of the Bible, and you just kind of take a big old chunk of the Old Testament and say, we just talked about that. But the point is simple. Man can't make it on the law alone. See, later on, after those 70 years of captivity... Zerubbabel took some people back, about 50,000 Jews, took them back to Jerusalem. They find a desecrated, desolate place where it was nothing like they remembered. In their second year after they came, they begin to rebuild the temple. It's the second Jewish temple known as Zerubbabel's temple. Later on in Jesus' time, a third temple was built called Herod's temple. But when they were building the temple, they, they, they come and, and there's a lot of, of opposition from their enemies as they begin to rebuild and things begin to fight. It took them very slow. Ezra was a priest and he had an understanding of the word. He, he didn't have everything he wanted, didn't have the, you know, all of the, the scrolls. In fact, some of it they found while they were building. But he began to find it. Nehemiah had been that Persian king's cupbearer and he was able to, to kind of help him. Get, get what they needed to go back. They go to Jerusalem. They rebuild. They taught. There's some incredible... Uh, read Ezra, or Ezra. Read Ezra and Nehemiah. Read this revival that they were trying to get. Men like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. They were prophets. Even though they had come home, they were prophets. They were trying to encourage the Jews that it's time to get right. The problem with the Old Testament is it ends with them not listening. If all you had was the Old Testament, we'd be of all men most miserable. Because the Old Testament, time and time again, you would think after you've been in captivity all your life, which is why it's really funny when Jesus shows up and Paul shows up and begins to say that you were slaves to sin and you have some high-minded Pharisees that say, us? We're Abraham's sons. We've never been in captivity a day of our life. Israel spent probably at least half of their existence and maybe more in captivity in one way or the other. The Old Testament is just one of continual backsliding. 
If you could graph the Old Testament on a, on a long linear graph and, and up here is godliness and down here is, is just sinful pagan idolatry, they were trending always down. They would have a few blips, a few jumps, but the jumps would never get them as high as the jump before. But the bottoming would always go farther, just this continuing down. Again and again, they forgot God's word. Now, I will tell you this, at the end of, of the Old Testament, they finally got out of idolatry for the most part. They no longer had it. But I'm convinced, and, and this is, I'm, I'm going to just tell you, you don't have to say this when you teach this Bible study, this is just me. But because they had gone so long in captivity at the end without a temple, without what God had given them in the law. They, they didn't have the, the sacrifices they could give. They, they didn't have the, the Ark of the Covenant. They started this synagogue. They started just kind of gathering together and teaching. And there's nothing wrong with that. I believe in God's Word. But there was no power anymore. Which is why when Jesus showed up and walked in the synagogue and taught them, they were amazed. Because they had existed so long on just the stories of the Old Testament and the prophecies of the Old Testament, but it had no power. Much like so many churches in our world today. They can read the Bible, they can have church, but there's no power. But on that dark, dark place, in fact, got to the place where God kind of said, you know what? I'm going to let you on your own. I have, I have sent prophets to you. I have, I, have, I have brought you into captivity time and time again. And you just don't listen. So I'm going to be quiet. And for 400 years, it's what they call, and it's, it's the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. For 400 years, God didn't send a prophet. God didn't send a sermon. They just existed on the writings that the prophets had. They existed on the, the Torah that Moses had, had wrote by, by God's unction. Until, and that's our next lesson. Until there was a little virgin named Mary, a devout man named Joseph, some wise men a long way away that probably didn't even understand exactly what they were about to get themselves into, but they saw a star. And God said, you know, I've let my, mankind run its course. The law couldn't save them. They, 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 can't, they can't handle that. The sacrifices, it, 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 it served its course, but it's not getting rid of the sin. So I'm going to come down and I'm going to do what the law couldn't and I'm going to do what the sacrifice couldn't. Gabriel, I'm going to become like them. I'm going to become like them so that one day they can become like me. And where the Old Testament ends in despair, there still is woven throughout all of the Old Testament prophecies that they didn't catch. Prophecies like Isaiah saying, 
For unto you a child is born. And unto you a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. You shall call his name Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Prophecies like, oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And and I'm paraphrasing, though you be little, something great's going to happen. See, it kind of works because how many, okay, let's be honest. How many of you started listening to Christmas music already? All right, good. I'm proud of you. I get in the truck and Zoe grabs my phone because my truck is so old it doesn't have a radio right now. And so that really drives my children crazy. And so they have to have music. And so they grab my phone and they turn on Pandora or Google Play and we start listening to Christmas music. Because it's not just a season. It was the promise that said the Old Testament doesn't have to be the way you live. So next week, we'll get into the New Testament. We'll get into the Gospels. And and when we get into the Gospels, we start getting into the whole purpose of why we're doing a Bible study because it's more than just a historical understanding. We're getting to the place where we can lead them, those that you're teaching, we can lead them to a place where you can say, you know what? The salvation that Jesus brought us, it's for you and for your children and for their children too. This promise is unto you the promise of salvation. And we'll get to that. Why don't we stand today? And I want us just to lift our hands and I want us to uh, I want us to give God some good praise right now. Father, we love you. God, I know that today